0: Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity now to focus on your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth, who takes these great truths of the gospel and impresses them upon our minds and our hearts. Father, we pray that we would be able to focus, concentrate on what you're saying to us today, and that what you say to us would not simply be uh, a matter of uh, uh, academic interest but rather that it would impact upon our lives and we pray this in jesus name amen the work of the holy spirit has been an issue which has divided christians uh, that might seem strange to us, because we would expect the Holy Spirit would not divide Christians. We would expect the Holy Spirit to unite Christians. But it is true that the, uh, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, or uh, certain views of the Holy Spirit, have been a cause for division amongst Christians. Because on the one hand, uh, there are some Christians who say that other Christians have ignored the Holy Spirit, uh, that they have uh, had a doctrine of God the Father and God the Son, but uh, have been very weak on the doctrine of God the Holy Spirit, and that the result of that has been a faith which is dry, uh, intellectual, um, ceremonial, and lacking in life. Uh, on the other hand, there are Christians who said, well, no, that's not true, and that they've said that some of the expressions of the work of the Holy Spirit that are talked about by other Christians may in fact not be works of the Holy Spirit, that there may be other ways of explaining those particular experiences. And then for many Christians, it's all just a bit confusing, isn't it? Uh, There are Christians who say, well, I I trust in Jesus as my Lord and my Saviour, and I read God's Word and I want to live for Him, but I'm not quite sure if I've got the full deal. I'm not sure if I've got the full blessing of the Holy Spirit. If there's something that I'm missing out on, I'm not even sure if I've got the Holy Spirit at all. Uh, Christians can be confused about the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why, about three years ago, we did a whole sermon series over about a month or so on the uh, teaching from the Bible on the Holy Spirit. What does the bible clearly teach about the work of the spirit that's a vital question because in the fog which is created by a lot of the contemporary debate and the different views there are some important bible passages which i think have been neglected and one of those passages is the passage which we're dealing with this morning from John chapter 16, verses 5 to 15. Can I ask you to have that open in your Bibles in front of you, please? Now, the context, of course, is the Passover. It's that last conversation that Jesus would have with his disciples before his arrest in Gethsemane. Jesus has just told his disciples that he is about to leave them. And so what we see in verse 6 is that Jesus himself acknowledges that the disciples are now in grief because of what he said to them. Um, We can understand that. Uh, They loved Jesus. They had been with Jesus for three years. They depended upon him. They followed him. They had high expectations in relation to Jesus. But now he's saying that he will leave them And we saw earlier that uh, he said that where he was going, at least initially, they could not come. But in verse 7, Jesus says that it's actually good for him to leave them. Why is that so? Let me read verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, why does Jesus say that unless he leaves, that the counsellor or the Holy Spirit uh, cannot come to them or would not come to them? Uh, Why is it that the Holy Spirit would only come if Jesus left? Some of you may remember from chapter 14 that uh, when Jesus also spoke about the Holy Spirit, that he promised that one day God would dwell with his people, that God would in fact dwell in his people. Remember that? How is it that God dwells in his people? He dwells in his people through through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Back in chapter 7, verse 39, John says that the Holy Spirit could not come until Jesus had been glorified. Now, what, what does this all mean? Well, two things. Firstly, God would not make his home amongst us until sin had been dealt with. And that was what Jesus was leaving them in order to do. Jesus would have to leave in order to pay for our sin on the cross. Uh, we had to be reconciled to God before God would make his home within us because God is a holy God. Secondly, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Holy Spirit is described as being the deposit which guarantees the inheritance which we will receive. Um, it is an inheritance which would only be achieved through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. And so if the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a deposit which guarantees that which is to come, that deposit, that guarantee is based on the fact that of the resurrection of Jesus, which tells us that God has accepted the death of Jesus on the cross as being the acceptable sacrifice for sin and that Jesus has gone to heaven to, to pave pay the way to prepare a home for us. And so it's for these reasons that the Holy Spirit could only come after Jesus had gone to be with his Father. Uh, if Jesus had not left the disciples, the Spirit would not have been received. What then is the work of the Holy Spirit? Let me read verses 8 to 11. In verse 8, Jesus says, When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, um, critical work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me flesh that out. Let me talk firstly about the state of our world. I wonder if you've noticed, as I have, that when high-profile people get caught having committed some kind of wrongdoing, that uh, when they're on the media and they have to explain themselves, uh, how is it that they typically describe their wrongdoing? They describe their wrongdoing as being... What are your thoughts? Trivial? Trivial? Yep. (laughs) Other thoughts? Uncharacteristic? Yep. A couple that I've heard uh, recently were, uh, I've heard over time are, I made a mistake. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember when I was at school, you know, when I made a a mistake, that meant that I added something up incorrectly, that I was intending to do something else, but I just made a mistake and got it wrong. Uh, But they say, I made a mistake or I made an error of judgement. And so it's kind of like a morally neutral uh, position that they're taking. They're they're not saying that I did anything uh, wrong, Uh, it's just that I made a mistake or an error of judgement. Justice Marcus Einfeld is a retired judge of the Federal Court of Australia and of the Supreme Courts of New South Wales, Western Australia and the ACT and an eminent international lawyer. In 2006, his car was snapped by a speed camera, and it was snapped because the, the car was exceeding the speed limit, and he was issued a fine of $77. In an effort to avoid losing points on his licence, he contested the fine and in order to do so, he lied. Uh, what, What he said was that on that particular day that he wasn't even driving his car. He said that he had lent his car to a friend, a lady friend who was visiting from America and that she was driving on that day, that she was responsible and that she had gone, now gone back to America. Uh, one uh, keen journalist uh, did some investigations of this lady and discovered that she, would, she was dead, and she'd been do- dead for a long time. And so when this was raised with uh, Justice Einfield, he said, well, no, actually, that's another lady with the same name, but the person I lent the car out to, she also lives in America, and she was... And then he... He brought in a, a false witness, a lady who apparently just he just met on the street one day, and she was after a bit of publicity for herself, and she was prepared to uh, to state that she was actually in the car with his friend when she was driving on that particular day when the when the uh, speed camera kind of flashed and uh, and, and and caught caught, 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 caught him the speeding. On the 29th of March, 2007, he was arrested and he was charged with offences including, get this, perjury, perverting the course of justice and making and using false statutory declarations. Uh, Retired judge. Uh, Yesterday at uh, 9.30am, Marcus Seinfeld walked out of Silverwater Jail having been there for the past two years. But the point of the story is, listen to what he said on the Four Corners program before he went to prison, where he admitted that he had lied, but this is what he said, and I quote, I don't think that I am the slightest bit dishonest. I just made a mistake. Now, we see the same thing when other well-known people are caught having committed acts of violence and sexual misconduct. They say, I made a mistake, I made an error of judgment. It is a rare person who would say, what I did was wrong. It is an even rarer person who would say, I have sinned against a holy God. Now, you're not likely to hear that on the media, are you? We don't sort of eagerly expect that to happen. And it's not just high-profile personalities and sportsmen. I mean, the only difference between them and everybody else is that they're high-profile. They're the ones who are likely to get on television and have to explain themselves. But the truth is that, uh, in our, you know, most people are just the same. Why is it so? The Bible uses the term the world in a couple of different ways. One of the main way, re, ways that the Bible uses the term the world is to describe the world as it is ruled by the evil one. Uh, in the fallen state, we are blinded to the truth by Satan. And so people think that they are good enough. People think that there's basically nothing particularly wrong with them, uh, that they are good enough or at least they're better than most other people. At least they or at least I'm just normal. And what it means is that there is this lack of recognition from people that they need someone to save them from God's judgment. They don't need a saviour. And so in verses 8 through to 11, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, that he will convict the world. Now, I'll say a bit more about... Conviction in a few moments. But uh, here it's not using convict in terms of a uh, legal sense. It's convict in terms of a change that takes place in a person, uh, an attitude which results in a response. The Holy Spirit will convict the world in regard to three things. Firstly, sin. Because in verse 9... Jesus says, because men do not believe in him. That is, they reject Jesus. And the reason they reject Jesus is because they don't acknowledge who he is, but more than that, they don't believe that they are sinful. They don't believe that they need a saviour. Secondly, the Spirit will convict men in regard to righteousness. And Jesus explains that in verse 10 because he says that he is going to the Father. That is, when Jesus was with them, he was the embodiment of God's righteousness. In fact, his righteousness exposed their unrighteousness. But soon he would be gone. The Spirit would convict people of righteousness. Thirdly, the Spirit will convict men in regard to judgment because in verse 11, the prince of this world now stands condemned. Well, What does that mean? Um, People don't believe in judgment. Uh, They they don't believe in God's judgment. They say that it'll never happen or they say, well, yeah, I do believe in it, but I believe that I'll pass or I'm hoping that I'll pass because I've been a pretty good person throughout my life. But the cross of Jesus is the evidence of the reality of God's judgment and the evidence of the absolute standard of God's judgment as well. On the cross, Jesus bore our judgment so that the power that Satan had over us... And remember, what is the power that Satan had over us? The power that Satan had over us is the pointing finger of accusation. Uh, without our sin being dealt with, uh, Satan is able to point the finger at, at us and say guilty. But uh, uh, as Paul says in Colossians, that on the cross Jesus disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities. He took away the guilt of our sin, which means that Satan has no power over us. What it does mean is is that it is Satan who is now condemned. People looked at the cross and they thought that Jesus was condemned. The reality is that the prince of this world is now the one who is condemned. So what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Uh, His work is not just to teach us these things uh, or even to persuade us about these things. No, what does he come to do? He comes to... Convict us of the truth of these things. Um, When you are convicted by a certain matter, uh, what does that mean? Well, it's not just that you understand it. It's not even that you believe it. It's that your understanding and your belief compels you to act, compels you to change, compels you to be committed. That's what you mean when you say, I really feel convicted about something, don't you? That you've got to change. And that is the work of God's Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to take these gospel truths about sin, righteousness and judgment and to so impress them upon our hearts that it is akin to having a heart transplant uh, to being given new life, to becoming a changed person. And this is not new uh, when Jesus spoke this. This is the sort of thing that the prophets had been speaking about for hundreds of years. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 36, about 800 years before Christ, when Israel was in, in exile... Have a look at what uh, God said through Ezekiel in uh, verses 26 and 27. I've printed it for you on your sheet so you don't have to look that up. Uh, This is the big promise in Ezekiel 36. God says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will reach in and I will remove from you your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. And it goes on to say, and move you to live obediently to me. Great promise, isn't it? And that's the work of God's spirit. To take cold, spiritually dead, rebellious hearts and replace them. What does that mean? In practical terms, in the life of a person. It means that people are changed. It, it means that instead of being proud and arrogant and cold towards God and self-righteous, that a person becomes humble and honest about sin. You know who the hardest people are to the people most unlikely to turn to Christ? It's the person, people who think that they are good enough, and God actually needs to. To take that away from them, to help them to see more clearly uh, how they actually do stand uh, before a holy God. So the Holy Spirit changes people's hearts and melts their pride so that they become humble and honest about sin, so that they seek after God's forgiveness and rejoice. As they place their trust in Christ and then want to live for Him. Have you experienced that? You know what I'm talking about? You've seen God at work in your life and in the lives of those around you. You know, these days, uh, there are people who are seeking after all kinds of great and spectacular miracles from the Holy Spirit. And there are places where you can go with a claim that that's what will happen if you go to, to that particular church or that particular place. But the greatest miracle of the Spirit, friends, is this. It is to change hearts. It is to draw men and women and boys and girls to a point in their lives where they'll put their trust in Jesus and then bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we talked about uh, last week. That's the work of the Spirit in the world. But in verse, as we move on in the passage, in verses 12 through to 15, the Holy Spirit, Jesus promises, would also be at work in the disciples. Let me read a couple of verses for you. Verse 12, Jesus says to them, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So again, their context, Jesus, their teacher, is about to leave them. And I've got to ask you the question, from what you know of the disciples, do you you think that they were ready? Uh, Do you really think that they understood the significance of the cross? No. Uh, Do you think that they understood anything about God's plan and and purpose for the future of the world? No. Do you think that they had the knowledge to write scripture? Uh, Do you think that any of them could have stood up and preached a sermon to a large crowd of people explaining who Jesus is and why he had to go to the cross and how people ought to respond. No way. No way. Uh, They were unable to do those things. It was not until the resurrection of Jesus that he taught them more things, and particularly the coming of the Holy Spirit. What were they like after the Spirit came? Remember the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and they were gathered together in that room and they were praying and so on and then the Spirit came upon them in what looked like tongues of fire and they started speaking in uh, other languages, I would argue in languages which they knew um, in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. Uh, not just in Hebrew. And people gathered around them and Peter stood up and he was able to preach to a crowd of thousands. What did he say to them? Well, he told them firstly that Jesus had been accredited by God to them through his miracles. He told them secondly that they had put Jesus to death and that Jesus was now seated at God's right hand in heaven, and that his enemies would now become a footstool for his feet. And what happened? I mean, just think about that. That was Peter, who always was putting his foot in it and saying the wrong things. Uh, He spoke so clearly, so boldly, so passionately, so accurately, and what was the result of that? Well, the Holy Spirit, we're told, convicted people in that crowd, convicted them of their their sin in in rejecting Jesus, Uh, convicted them of what righteousness was, that Jesus was in fact the righteous and holy Son of God and convicted them of the fact that they now stood under the judgment of Almighty God. And what happened? Well, Luke tells us when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, well, repent. Put your trust in Jesus. Be baptised. And about 3,000 of them did so. The Holy Spirit works through the truths of the gospel spoken through the mouths of men to change the hearts of men, humans. Uh, in many churches, there is confusion about the Holy Spirit, but this is the key work of the Spirit. If there, is, if there is one truth about the Holy Spirit that you need to understand and comprehend, it is this, that he changes people's hearts, that he draws people to Jesus and works in their lives that they might have the fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> and it has enormous implications especially if we are people who desire for other people to become Christians too. Because what it does is it gives us confidence in the great truths of the gospel. Sometimes when we think about our community and our nation and the people that we know, uh, we can wonder to ourselves, could we ever persuade them to put their trust in Jesus and start living for God? And it seems impossible, doesn't it? Um, The big temptation is to therefore resort to other strategies, Um, to resort, for example, to gimmicks, or to uh, preach a message And to share a message which says nothing about sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a controversy that's happening right now over a new book that's been published. The book's called Love Wins. Has anyone heard of the book Love Wins? Okay. Um, By a guy called Rob Bell, I think. And he's doing the big book promotion tour around the United States at the moment with interviews on television and radio and so on to uh, promote his uh, book. Uh, He's the uh, pastor of a very popular megachurch in, I think, Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. And what he claims is that ultimately all people will be saved, even those who reject Christ in this life. I have not read the book. I'm not sure that I want to invest time that you pay me for to be reading such a thing. Uh, Instead, I went for the quick option and I watched a video of him explaining what he said was his gospel, his message. And in his gospel message, he said nothing about sin, nothing about righteousness, nothing about judgment. Uh, It was all about joining God's community and being part of what God is doing in terms of loving people and loving our world and living in community with other people and so on. It's interesting that the reason it was brought to my attention is because the secular media is doing interviews with him and I watched a, uh, one interviewer interview him on secular media on NBC I think it was or MSNBC and the interviewer said, hang on a moment, it seems to me that what you're doing is that you're denying the fundamental claims of Christianity. Uh, he says, aren't you, aren't you just changing the message and getting rid of the hard bits uh, be, to make it more palatable so as to draw more people in? He says, I put it to you that that's what you've done in your book. And the guy goes, oh, no, 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 I haven't done that, <laughs> of course. Well... Friends, when we think about our non-Christian friends and the people that we know, and when we think about how stubborn people are towards God, we can wonder. And we can wonder, you know, if I speak the gospel truthfully and if I don't sort of cover over the hard truths, then, you know, unless I don't speak it truthfully, they'll never believe. But if I do speak it truthfully, uh, they, they they won't believe. And so we, we, we have concerns about, um, we, we lose confidence in the actual message. And in one sense, that's fair enough, because without God's spirit, the answer is no. Without God's spirit, uh, they will not be convicted that they are sinners in God's sight. Without God's spirit, they will not be convicted of the righteousness of God, Without God's spirit, they will not be convicted of the reality of judgment. Without God's spirit. And that's why that is the work of the spirit. Who miraculously convicts people of the truth of the gospel. And so the work of the spirit means that we can be confident in proclaiming the gospel as it is. And we must never compromise that message. Instead, what it means is that we should be people of prayer. We should be people who acknowledge that without the work of God's spirit that it is impossible for anyone to turn back to God. And so therefore we ask God earnestly, continually, not just in our public prayers here in church, but in our private prayer times, that we need to be bringing before God the people who we love, members of our family, uh, neighbours, workmates, relatives and so on, people who we know do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be praying for them that he would work his spirit in their lives. That's what I do constantly in my prayers as I pray for our world and we ought to be praying for our world uh, at all times, as you think about the crises that are happening in places like in North Africa and in Japan at the moment, we need to think, well, what is God doing through this? Is it the case that God is taking away from people those, uh, those things which they were living for? And is it the case that through this that God may actually cause people to think about what is truly important and valuable in life? And so we ought to be praying for Japan. We ought to be praying for Libya and Egypt and other places that God would be drawing people to himself. And we need to pray for those who we're in personal contact with continually over a long period of time sometimes. And don't stop praying for a person after the first year or after the first five years or after the first 10 or 20 years. Keep praying for those we love acknowledging that it is God who builds his church. We don't build God's church through our human intellect, our human abilities to persuade, not even our human strategies. This is a spiritual activity. It requires the spirit of the holy God to reach into people's hearts and replace those hearts with a heart of flesh. And so I want to ask us now to come before God and to be praying along those lines. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit because we acknowledge that in our fallen state that uh, we would be proud and arrogant and that we would not turn to you. We thank you that you've worked in our lives, softened our hearts, help us to trust in you, And we pray that through the work of your spirit that you would be working on an ongoing basis, making us people who are more loving, more compassionate, more forgiving. Father, we pray for our world. We pray for those areas in the world where there is great uh, difficulties at the moment which are really shaking people's confidence in those things that they've trusted. We pray that by your spirit that you would be drawing people to yourself, that they would find comfort and hope by trusting in Jesus and coming into relationship with yourself. Father, we pray for family and friends, workmates, neighbours who do not know you. We ask that you would be merciful, that you would pour out your spirit into their lives. We pray for an outpouring of your spirit into the town of Port Macquarie, And the nation of australia as well that you would be pleased to humble us and draw people to yourself and we pray that we would be confident in the gospel that uh, we would not be sucked into uh, the uh, pressure that says that we need to create a more palatable message father that is so untrusting in you and we pray that we would be faithful to the gospel and we would trust that you will do your work of building your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.